0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Uh, There's a saying in some churches I've been in, they say, He is risen, and then everyone responds, He is risen indeed. We could try that this morning. He is risen. Amen. I had one of my, my brothers in the Lord, my friends, good friends this morning, text me that. I said, He is risen. He said, He is risen indeed. Amen. Just a preview for the weeks coming up. Uh, Next Sunday, we will have a guest speaker, one of the uh, professors at Emmaus Bible College. I teach there, and uh, this professor, he's actually leaving Emmaus this year, going to be moving to South Carolina, so I asked him if he could come visit and uh, and give us a word before he leaves town. His name's Joel Hernandez, so we're looking forward to that. He'll be talking about what's next after Easter Sunday, what's next will be the, the title of his message. And then uh, the following Sunday, we'll have Brother Kyle, who is up here doing announcements. We'll be uh, preaching, bringing the word. And then after that, we'll be getting a a new series going through the book of Galatians. So look forward to that. Will you pray with me before we open the word? Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this Sunday, Lord God. And and it's a special Sunday that we get to focus and celebrate what Jesus did for us. And, uh, Lord, you sent your Son, and he willingly came to this earth to take our place. And uh, your Spirit is now at work in the world to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, uh, Lord God, we praise you that you are at work, always have been, always will be. Uh, Lord, until the end, where we get to enjoy you forever, we ask right now, Lord, I ask right now, that you'd open our eyes to your Word Lord, that you would allow, uh, as we read it, to hear it, to see it, to understand it. Lord, And anything that I would say would just add clarity uh, to what you are saying in your word, Lord. Not adding to your words, and Lord, I pray against distracting from them. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. I'm actually going to pull this up again real quick. One sec. All right, we are looking at one of the most profound. Excuse me, not one of. We are looking at the most profound event in history. That's the best way to frame it, right? Um, one of the most profound places in the Bible. There are four gospels, or or four accounts of the life of Jesus from his birth. To his resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 15 into chapter 16 today. So we'll be looking at Mark's account as we open. And I just want to remind us of a few things as we're reading. I'm going to kind of catch us up to where we're at in the Gospel of Mark, some things that he's been talking about throughout his Gospel. And I just want us to be paying attention to what the Word says. I'm up here not because of pedigree, not because I have a degree, not because I have. Uh, some value God has put me up here and I just want to I just want to open the word open the Bible and try to explain what it says there's there's really nothing I can add to this passage right there's just we want to see it for what it says so let me I'm going to read a few verses for you we won't have those on the screen but uh, if you're quick and flipping through your phone or through your Bible you can look at those mark chapter 1 verse 1 opens with the beginning of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I know we hear gospel a lot. A brief definition, what it means is good news. Good news that is proclaimed. Something that someone tells you, right? What would have been common back then is they didn't have uh, the news feeds that we got on our phone, right? They didn't have television, they didn't have radio, any of that. Someone would have been sent from one place, from a war, from a town, etc., to to someone else, to another town perhaps, to an army perhaps, depending on what the news was, with a message. And it's kind of this concept. And when you receive the message, you know it's good. That's a good message. It's not, uh, it, this is like this message of victory or this message of so and so getting married. Um, this is good news. That's what Mark wants to tell us right at the beginning. This message about this guy named Jesus. Not last name Christ, but the Messiah. Christ means Messiah, right? That's the Greek. Um, Messiah is the Hebrew. Jesus, who is the Messiah, this one that was told about in the Old Testament, this Messiah figure, this guy named Jesus, is the very one. And he is the Son of God. Mark 9, there's now a few accounts that Mark records about Jesus predicting his death. He was here, and he knew exactly what he came to earth for, and this is what he says. He told his disciples, he says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And you'll notice, he says, the Son of Man, Mark opens with the Son of God. Kind of these two titles are throughout the gospel accounts, and Mark's using them here to tell us something. He was born of a woman, but he's God's son. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. He tells them a little bit later, he says in in chapter 10, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of history in Jerusalem, right? If you've read through the scriptures, even if you haven't read through the scriptures, Jerusalem is this city that of all cities should have been the city where you could go and you can meet God. But we find this is the place actually where the people, God's people, the Jews, together with the Gentiles, killed the Son of God. The Son of Man, he says, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him, to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, or the nations, right? The Jews had this connotation, we're Jews, and here are all the nations, or they say Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And then a few verses later, he says this, that I think is very important for the whole book of Mark. It says, the Son of Man, didn't, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll see through this account that we're about to read that all of these things happened. Jesus said, this is going to happen to me. They're going to kill me. They're going to mock me or spit on me. They're going to flog me. And that's what happened. The chief priests, the scribes, the nations, they're going to come against me to kill me and they will kill me. And those things happened. And he says this very clearly. It's not an accident. It's not coincidence. They didn't just rise up against me and overpower me. But I laid my life down. I gave my life. I'm going to give my life as a ransom or a payment for many. So, as we read, let's consider what is this payment. Is this payment true? Do you, do I, do we, do all people need this man, Jesus, the Messiah, to pay for something? When we see his body on the cross, when we see his blood being poured out and shed, Although he was innocent, is that for me? Do I need that? Because the Bible says we do. And the Bible says now we have access to God only through Jesus, not by anything that we do. And we want to consider these things as we read this account in Mark. Let me give you a few more details because we're going to be, if you want to turn there, Mark 15 verse 21 is where I'll start. But there's a few things that happen before this part. A little before this, we see Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. You ever had somebody betray you? None of us to the extent that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and Judas came up to him and greeted him with a kiss, an intimate, an intimate. gesture in his culture at that day, right? We still have people or cultures throughout the world that greet one another with a kiss. I was shocked when I was in Paris and a lady came to me and kissed me on the side of my cheek, and I was like, I tell my wife, oh no. And then I realized she greeted everyone uh, in the building with a kiss. A very warm, friendly gesture, right? Judas does that to betray his friend. Then a little while after that, we see the disciples, or just right after that, the disciples all flee. There's this crowd that Judas brings to, to take Jesus away captive. And all his, his closest friends, all of his closest followers, they run away. They're scared. They flee from him. Then Jesus is brought before this jury or this uh, this makeshift trial that's been put together last minute and wrongfully accused as deserving death. And then we see Peter, and Peter's one of these three disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus that are really close to him. Jesus would take 12 disciples away, and we know that they were the closest, and Judas was one of those. And of the 12, 12, there were three, and Peter was one of the three. And we see Peter deny again and again that he even knew Jesus. He was afraid to stand with Jesus, to say, I know him, that I follow him. And in the morning, we see Jesus brought before Pilate. He's the governor of that region at that time. And Pilate eventually decided that it would be better to condemn Jesus, an innocent man, than to displease displease the crowds. So here this ruler has the power, has the right, has the ability to say, no, I will not crucify him. But instead, instead looks at the crowds and says, I want to please them, and gives in and says, You take him and you crucify him. And this is where we find ourselves. Mark 15, verse 21. And I'll read, and I'll kind of comment as we go. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is happening I didn't mention this, but this is happening if you look at the verses before right after he'd been beaten and he'd been mocked and, and uh, whipped or scourged, there was this little um, this little whip that was probably about eight inches, ten inches or so as a wooden handle, and then there would have been leather uh, leather straps, and each leather strap would have had a couple, if not maybe a few, uh, lead balls or beads on it, and so the the guards would have stand stood right behind Jesus and hit him with this, and hit him and hit him. So if you've seen his pictures of what it would have looked like for Jesus to, to go over the cross, he's bloody, he's marred, he's maimed. He could have been probably hit in the face, the neck, the back, the legs, the arms, and stripped and bleeding. Right, I used to picture this this whip, and Jesus is way over there, and it's like this guy's trying to hit him, and he's really good, and he kind of cracks a no. He's right here, and they're hitting him, and probably the amount have been maybe forty or thirty-nine strikes. So here goes Jesus. And what happens? We see this guy Simon of Cyrene, and just it, it, it's apparent from Mark that probably everyone who reading this, or a number of people, knew him, knew who Simon was because they say, "Oh, it was the father of Alexander and Rufus." Simon, he's coming from the country. He's from Cyrene, which is uh, modern day Libya, kind of northern Libya, up on the up on the sea, right in Africa, and uh, he's just kind of going about his own business, coming into town, and what happens to him, unsuspectedly. He gets pulled and he gets brought face-to-face with Jesus on the way to the cross and told to carry the cross of Christ. And Mark, Mark puts him here, and I wonder why. And I think it's perhaps that we are going to be like that at times. Sometimes Jesus wants to take you. And maybe he's taking you. Maybe he's getting ready to take you face-to-face with himself right up next to Jesus and carrying this cross, and you say, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't looking for this. But no doubt what happens after we have those encounters, after Simon had this encounter, everyone knew him. He was different. He was a changed man, right? As we see people repeatedly again and again pay tribute to Jesus and what the words that they say about him and his crucifixion. Verse 22, Jesus is taken outside of the city of Jerusalem, uh, and he's brought to this place called Golgotha or Calvary, this place of a skull. When we read in the Old Testament, uh, there is these sacrifices that Israel was supposed to supposed to perform, and one of the sacrifices involved two goats, and one goat was uh, the sins of the of the people, all the people of Israel for that year. They were their hand, the high priest put his hands on top of the goat and and confessed all the sins and they would send that goat outside of the city to an unclean place. Here we see Jesus taking all the sins of all people of all time past us today and even yet future bearing those on himself and being sent outside of the city to an unclean place an unholy place a sinful place as it were. And Jesus said I'm not going to I'm not going to not feel the full extent of this crucifixion. In verse 23 we read, They offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This would have taken the edge off of the pain that he felt. But he had just prayed into the, in the garden to his father. If this is your will, I'm going to endure it. I'm going to move forward with it. He submitted his will to the father. And then they crucified him. Even fulfilling scripture again and again, casting lots or casting dice or betting for his garments. Jesus bore the shame in full. He was naked, right? He didn't dress well at the cross. He didn't look good. He didn't look pretty. He's bloody. He's maimed. He's been beaten. He's been humiliated. And he's naked. Completely naked. Right? So when we see pictures of crucifixes and Jesus got that loincloth on there, it's not there. I'm sure you've heard that before, but we want to reiterate that. All of his clothes were gone. Full shame on display. And it was the third hour, verse 25, when they crucified him. It's about nine in the morning. And there was an inscription or a charge against him. Probably This was probably put up above him. I think other gospel accounts say this. And it read, the king of the Jews. The gospel account is so ironic. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. He is the king of the Jews. And yet, he's condemned. And yet, he's put in a place of utter shame, of utter humility, of death. He's not treated like a king. He's treated like an enemy of the state. Not just the Romans, but also the Jews, his own people. Verse 27, and they crucified two robbers on his right hand and on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, the sacred place of worship. For the Jews, where God's presence dwelt, they thought it was the physical temple he was talking about. He was talking about his body, God in the flesh. They said this in verse 30. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So the chief priests and with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He could not save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, here they say, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also were, also reviled him. This picture, this Innocent man. Again and again, the Bible bears witness to this reality. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus did no wrong. He did no wrong. None of us can say that. We can't point to anyone and say, they did no wrong. Oh man, they're so good. They're so clean. They're so pure. One man. God who became man as the repeated testimony of Scripture. He did no wrong. And here's the irony. He is the king of the Jews, and he's mocked as the king of the Jews, as if he weren't. He's mocked as if he weren't powerful enough to come down off the cross. And he's between two guilty men. He's put up there, and they mock him. Another gospel account records how actually one of the thieves on the cross changed his mind. And he recognized he was guilty, not Jesus. But here we see the mocking. Here we see the priests. Here we see the scribes mocking him as if they would really believe in him. You, king of the Jews, step down from the cross, oh, and save yourself, and then we'll believe in you. What about the blind? That could see. What about the lame that could walk? What about Lazarus, who was dead, who was who rose from the dead at the word of Jesus? Lazarus, come out! About all these signs, all these wonders, all this teaching, all these people that believed in Jesus when He was around. The scribes and the Pharisees—they didn't. There were few, but by and large, didn't believe in Jesus. This is not a genuine offer. This is mockery. Oh, you're on the cross. You're big now, right? We'll step down and we'll believe in you. No. No, you won't. But Jesus knows that if he steps off the cross, what would happen? He would not be following the Father's will. And what would be at stake beyond that? Our eternal destiny. The only way to God is through Jesus, the God-man, and he had to go to the cross. The Bible repeats again and again. And here we see this. You're innocent. You're all-powerful. You are the king of the Jews. Step down. Why not get off? He did it for us. He did it for the Father. He stayed on the cross, even though he was mocked. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, so it was the third hour earlier, about nine o'clock, this is probably noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Is there a coincidence no. The physical reality shows us what's going on in the spiritual realm. There is darkness. I don't know if you've um, heard of the Chronicles of Narnia. There's other stories I can't think of at the moment. Um, But there's this scene where there's this this lion called Aslan. And uh, Aslan is kind of this messiah figure. It's it's an allegorical story of another world that kids from our world go to and they kind of experience things that point them to Jesus here, but it's, his name's Aslan there, and this is this lion. And he eventually has he eventually goes to this stone and he sacrifices himself for one of the kids who came from our world into this fictional world, Narnia. And we see the forces of darkness gather around him. Like the pinnacle the peak ruler, the white witch, and all these forces of evil, and there's this darkness and, and it, it's like this here. We see the dark cloud gather around. And it's as if the forces of evil are winning. The darkness will prevail against the light. And yet, behind that, we have to know as we read through Scripture that it's not just evil. It's not just everyone rising against Jesus. But it's God doing something that he alone can do. He's taking the darkness. He's taking the evil in our hearts, in our lives, in this world. And he's condemning it all in this man, Jesus. God, the son of God, who became also the son of man. Bearing the weight of what the Bible calls sin. All those things that we do which are wrong. All the things that other people do that are wrong. Everything in this world that's broken and messed up, he's undoing that. That's deep darkness. And for us, we can never pay that off. But for him, he did it in time. He did it in this moment. All this is taking place during this time. In verse 34, we see him in agony. We see the reality of this coming out. As he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, or Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, which is probably what Jesus spoke. Which means, not English, right? Let's just make note. Okay, we're reading English. He's not, he's, he wasn't speaking English. That's not his tongue. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook God. The Father forsook the Son. Some people will look at this and they say, Hey, Jesus going to the cross, this is, this is divine child abuse. You're wrong. It's not. Jesus, the Son of God, willingly went to the cross. The Father willingly sent him. God was willing to do this for us. Jesus was willing to do something, to experience something he'd never experienced before for us. Being forsaken by his Father. Taking sin upon us. Jesus looks at, the Father looks at the Son, and there's sin, our sin, all of it. And in this moment, he forsakes him for us. Some of the bystanders, verse 35, hearing it said, Oh, he's, behold, he's calling Elijah. Elijah is one of these very, really profound uh, prophets in the Old Testament. One of two people in the Old Testament that we read about that never died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven oh maybe he's calling Elijah verse 36 and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed as if this is going to help right and gave it to him to drink saying um excuse me who's saying this uh and gave it to him to drink saying wait 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 let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down Elijah's not coming not quite sure if they're mocking him anymore, but giving him sour wine is not going to help. Jesus is crucified. And if this never kind of been explained to you, you've probably seen it in pictures, but he would have had a really big nail put right through here, one on this side as well, and probably through his feet. His feet would have been crossed over. I got boots on, so I'm not going to take my boots off. Um, nail put right there through his feet. And then he's, 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 he's suspended in air. And if he's wanting to, to breathe anything like this, he's got to push up. He's going to hurt himself. He's going to bleed more. He's going to be in more pain. Right? It's a, it's, I don't even know what it's like. I can imagine. We can imagine, right? But we don't know what it's like. And so adding a drink to him is not going to help him breathe. People have said this is probably actually going to help him suffocate a lot faster. So they're probably continuing mocking. We're not quite sure if they just misunderstood him here. But the drink won't help in verse 37 Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last notice what it doesn't say and they killed Jesus yes they crucified him yes they put him to death but they don't have power over life god has power over life jesus here breathed his last of his own will. The work was over. How do we know the work was over? Other Gospels tell us a little bit differently. This one says, verse 38: And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me just kind of paint a picture of the temple. It's kind of a, a rectangle shape here. It's kind of the outer layer. And you'd walk in through the front, and you'd have to perform these sacrifices. You wouldn't perform them, but a priest would do them, right? You'd bring a sacrifice. You'd bring uh, a lamb. You'd bring a goat before it. And it had to be pure and clean, no blemishes, no broken legs, no spots on its fur or anything, on its coat or anything like that. And there were certain requirements for what that looked like, and they'd be sacrificed. And once a year, and I mentioned this earlier, with the two goats, the one, the uh, priest would put his hands on there, the head of the goat, and confess all the sins. It would be sent out the, outside the city. Once, one time a year, they would take the blood of the other goat that was sacrificed for the sin of all people. And here's this outer chamber, and then here's the temple up here. And they'd walk up and they'd enter through. And there were there were a couple chambers in there. And the, the furthest chamber at the top, from where you can see what I'm looking, what I'm kind of drawing here uh, with my hands, it was called the Holy of Holies. And in it, there was this kind of like box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there was these two angelic beings that were over it, kind of covering it. And once a year, the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest would walk in with the blood of this lamb and sprinkle it on the altar for his sin and for everyone. To make atonement at one mentor, or to appease the wrath of God because of sin. Well, he had to do it every year, every year, every year, every year, every year. And only that priest could walk into this part of the temple. Here, because of the work of Christ, that temple, the the veil of that temple is ripped in two. Now think about all these things that are happening. Here's darkness over the land. Here's this, this, this guy, Jesus, being crucified between two thieves. And the crowds want to condemn him, but no one can say he's guilty. He is innocent. And then the chief priests. And the, and the scribes, and they hear about, and the temple, that this veil has been torn. God repeatedly, again and again, is showing signs. Now telling everyone that through the death of Christ, and Mark wants us to notice, through the death of Christ, we have access to God. Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice gives us access. Not once a year, all the time, every day, every minute. We don't need someone else to go And pay for our sins. We don't need to pay for our sins. We don't have to muster up our own right, our own ability, our own merit to come before God. That's wrong. It's Jesus. If you go and read Hebrews chapter 10, it will repeat the same thing. We now have access to God by his blood. By the blood of Jesus. Verse 39. When the centurion, this is the, the Roman officer who would have been kind of watching over the whole crucifixion. He was in charge of it. When he stood facing him, Jesus, he saw that, in this, and saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. The Jews don't say this. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, who had the Old Testament, who had the Hebrew Bible, they should have known. They didn't get it. Here's the centurion watching, and he says, this is the Son of God. Remember how it opens up the book? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying, here's from the mouth of a Gentile, someone from the other nations, who shouldn't even know, but he recognized who Jesus was. Not even the Jews say this. Verse 40, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. While when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Here, it's, I think it's important for us to pay attention. Back in that day, women would not have been regarded very highly. Their testimony would have not been regarded very highly. But where are the men? Well, there's one here. Mark doesn't uh, record that. John does, probably because it's John. John was there and knew it. Uh, Mark just pays attention and looks out and says, Hey, it's just the women that are there at the cross. All the men have fled. Right? All the men have fled. Noble, honorable, and included in Scripture. Included in Scripture. Verse 42. When evening had come, since it was day of preparation, that is the Sabbath day, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted Joseph the corpse. Let me pause there. There's this question that lingers as well. Was Jesus actually dead? Maybe he didn't die. And there's all these different theories. Looking at Mark, this is probably the earliest gospel account written. Trained professionals who had hundreds if not more people killed. A centurion who would have watched over crucifixion after crucifixion after crucifixion. He knows what dead people look like. Pilate said, is he dead? The centurion said, he's dead. Other gospel accounts, we read about how they took a spear and stuck it into his side and pulled out, and blood and water rushed out. Jesus was dead. You can't get away from that reality. He died on the cross. Trained professionals. Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, is brave and asking for Jesus' body, verse 46, 47 Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, paying honor to Jesus in his death, and laid him in a tomb that, he had, that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's important because we're going to see them go to the tomb. But here, Jesus was not honored. He was shamed. He was mocked and ridiculed. But in his death... He's honored. He's taken care of. He's taken down from the cross and given a proper burial. Probably, I, th- I think it's Joseph's tomb. It's a rich man's tomb. Isaiah talks about that. prophesies this happening before it ever happened. Hundreds of years, hundreds of years in advance. I'll read the first eight verses of chapter 16. And we'll finish with these. When the Sabbath was passed, this is a day of rest. It's interesting. I read this a few days ago and I said, Do you remember Genesis? Genesis, I don't speak like that to myself. Uh, (laughs) I don't do that, except for sometimes. But Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. And then at the end, after all of his work, he rests. I said, is this what he's doing here? Is he highlighting this for me? The work of Jesus was finished. And then it's the Sabbath, this day of rest. Well, when the day of rest had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go anoint him. Remember, they know where he was buried, okay? I know some of us have navigation issues, and we got modern technology, right? Uh, But they would have been walking these paths, going to where Jesus' tomb was. They would have known the city and the countryside. They know exactly where they're going. Verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, 'Who Who will roll away the stone for us? From the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Verse 5 And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. They're probably alarmed for a number of reasons. I think one of them, this is an angel. Other accounts make that clear. Here, Mark kind of downplays this, right? It's this young man. No doubt, beautiful in appearance, bright, brilliant, radiant. Verse 6, and he said to them, don't be alarmed. Jesus. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen, has risen, excuse me. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus wasn't in the tomb. And here is this angelic, here's this angel there. Do you believe in angels? The Bible believes in angels, Right? They're there. They're real. They exist. And there's one. These ladies encounter him. Verse 7, he says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The original, uh, or the early writing... Uh, records that we have of the Gospel Mark ends with this verse, verse eight. Now we have other parts that were included, but the the at the beginning there are some of the earliest documents that we have just end here at verse eight. Now we're going to end there because I think it makes this it makes this contrast or um, this conclusion that we have to kind of wrestle with ourselves. See the end of the Gospel while the women were at the cross. At the end of Mark's gospel, at least in the original, uh, the initial writing of it, is this question: Will fear dominate? Will fear dominate you? Because the women were afraid. Now, the rest of the disciples were afraid too. Let's not let's let's make sure we know that for sure. Okay, the men fled. The women are here. They're going, and they see the empty tomb. And they're afraid to go and to proclaim. Here's the question for all of us. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is what the Bible says true? Because if it's true, we're faced with some choices, you and me. Right? I was born in a church. I was raised. I wasn't born at church, but you know, so I was raised in the church. I keep saying these things are wrong. I'm just making sure and clarify with you, uh, unless you start telling this story. that's a wrong story. Uh, yeah, Reagan. He was born at church, man. He's so holy. Uh, <clears throat> no, I was. I was privileged to be raised in a church, right? My dad. He didn't. He wasn't a Christian. I mean, he was Christian by culture. He's an Okie, uh, but wasn't a, a follower of Jesus till he was in college. Right, If you don't know, Okie is Oklahoma. He's from Oklahoma. Um, if that explains me at all. <clears throat> um, and so my, my, my household, my, my parents are trying to figure this thing out, right? What is it like to follow Jesus? We're a part of that. Uh, I got my sister here with me today. She can attest to that. And uh, so I, I knew about God, but it wasn't really till the end of high school for me that, that God said, Hey, are you going to follow me or are you going to do you? Do you want to pursue your life or to you want to come to what I'm calling you to? Think of Simon, right up there next to Jesus. Here's this guy from North Africa. And they say, nope, you're you're forced to go carry his cross. What does that do to a person? Think about the the women at the cross looking at Jesus. What does that do to a person? This, this isn't just looking at someone dying. I don't, we don't do that for sport currently, right? Unless you maybe you're wealthy and powerful and uh and then the evil just kind of flows out, and you can do that somehow these days. I'm not, I'm not sure I know of that currently. But throughout history, people have viewed death for fun, for pleasure. Right? Some people were there because they wanted to see Jesus die, but what did that do to them? As we go and read Acts, they were pierced in their heart. They said, what have we done? Not all of them, but a lot of them, thousands of them. The centurion... He'd he'd watch other people die. Tons of people die. Hundreds of people die. What did that do to him? He said, truly, he was the son of God. What does it do to us? Because we just live our lives, right? We live our lives like the women. We're afraid, maybe. We're afraid, maybe, to to go and to tell somebody about Jesus. Because what will that do? What will that mean? I saw this. Can, Can I... Can my testimony prove that the tomb is empty? You don't need to prove it. God can prove it himself. We don't need to hold the Bible up and say, hey, I'm going I'm to help God out. God, I'm going to show everybody this is actually true. God might ask you to help, but he doesn't need you to help. He could do it himself. Right? He's been convincing. He convinced me. He's been convincing millions of people throughout history that Jesus is the Messiah. And when we say the Messiah... We're talking about what everything is expected of in the Bible. That this is God's word. That we need not just a man. We need God to step down to become man. To deliver us from the problem inside of us. Because it's not just out here, right? I'm looking out and talking to y'all. It's easy to be like, man, it's Tavy. You know, he's the problem. Or man, that guy at, the, 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 at hy V, right? He's checking me out. He wouldn't give me that free item because he had the wrong price. Like, he's the problem with the world. You know, you keep looking out. God says, look within. It's inside of you. It's inside of all of us. Now, he wants to do away with what's inside of you first before he can use you to, do, to help to do away with what's inside of other people, to point, not to save them, but to point them to the one who can. Right? And this is Jesus' goal. Let's be clear. Within each and every person and the whole system, the whole world, he's making all things new. Do you believe? Do we believe this? That's the first question. Now, will you live like it, or will you live in fear? We'll talk next week about what it looks like to truly believe this as Joel Hernandez comes and speaks. Let's ponder these things right now, and let me pray as we close. Lord God, we have the witness of your word before us. And the the words of the Pharisees, of the people, reign in our minds. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. No, no they wouldn't. Lord, what have you been doing in each and every one of our lives? Your word says that you were active in our lives to show yourself to us, that we might seek you, we might find you, though you are not very far from any one of us. You're near, you're right there. There are things in each and every one of our lives that we can't explain, whether that's hardship, whether that's grief, whether that's reward, whether that's pleasure, whatever it is, use all of these things that we might see that it's you, that we might turn to you. We might not come to you on our own terms, but by your terms, through Jesus. We might see that we need him. And Lord, this is not something any of us can do. But when, you, when we see it, when you open our eyes, you call us to proclaim it. I pray for each and every one of us here today, Lord, whether to believe the first time or to be freed from fear, to fully follow you, Lord, that you would do the work that you intend, that you desire to do in each and every one of us through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In his name we pray. Amen.